Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about fighting to end fighting. set the stage a little bit because I'm going to be all over the map somewhat trying to relate my feelings about nothing smaller than nuclear war itself. To do this, I want to make a call out to a couple of programs online, a couple of podcasts. One, absolutely a must listen. And the other, which I think feeds right in to this conversation. I had been planning to deal with the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the first week of August for quite some time. And in between now and then, the Nerd Hurdles podcast, in their episode on the War of 1812, dealing with the Bicentennial of 1812, mention this exact point in history from an amazingly, to me, different perspective. I, I guess maybe as an American, and maybe as a conservative American. Now let me pause here and let that idea settle in a little bit, because I've maintained from the beginning of this show that I am neither liberal nor conservative. And what that actually means is that I am both, depending upon the issue, that from my perspective, I want to take the right point of view, and the right point of view isn't always one of these things or the other. In fact, the most wrong point of view you can possibly have is to line yourself up on the left at all times or the right at all times. And the second most wrong thing you can do is to line yourself up somewhere in the middle in a wishy-washy sort of a centrist way. No, I mean, to make really wise decisions, at least what I'm hoping are wise decisions, You've got to be on either side of the spectrum, depending on where the, the right answer is, where the, the least hypocrisy is. And on this question of nuclear war, particularly in 1945, I personally feel like the left perspective is the most hypocritical. So if there's a difference between myself and my point of view and Jacob and Mandy in the podcast that they put out on June 28th, it's related to this question of nuclear war. The podcast I actually recommend that you go out and seek, the really the most um, definitive statement on this, far more important than mine, uh, made this year anyway, from an historical perspective, is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. That probably is not a surprise, and it won't be a surprise that I'm strongly recommending not just the original show that he put out called Logical Insanity, but also the supplemental material that he put out on a pay-per-purchase basis a few weeks after that. You can find uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History and this episode called Logical Insanity, slated as a Blitz episode, show number 42, released on April Fool's Day. <laughs> kind of funny. April 1st, 2012. Well worth the listen. And I'm going to build on some of the assumptions that are made in both of these programs. But the other thing I'm going to tap into a little bit is a scene from the 1942 film, the Maltese Falcon. So the later, more famous filming of that story with Humphrey Bogart starring as Sam Spade and Sidney Greenstreet starring as, uh, as the fat man. And let me just relay some of that dialogue because I think that dialogue is going to help explain from an American perspective how I feel about this question of you know, what does it mean to end a war someone else started? So here's me just sort of reading. I'm not going to try to play characters here, but reading the exchange between Sam Spade and Casper Gutman in the Maltese Falcon, starting with Spade. If you kill me, how are you going to get the bird? And I know that you can't afford to kill me. So how are you going to scare me into giving it to you? 
Well, sir, there are other means of persuasion besides killing and threatening to kill. Yes, that's, that's true, but they're none of them any good unless the threat of death is behind them. You see what I mean? If you start something, I'll make it a matter of your having to kill me or call it off. That's an attitude, sir, that calls for the most delicate judgment on both sides. Because as you know, sir, in the heat of action, men are likely to forget where their best interests lie and let their emotions carry them away. Then the trick from my angle is to make sure my, my place strong enough to tie you up but not make you mad enough to bump me off against your better judgment. By God, sir, you are a character. And maybe the world on the question of nuclear war and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki could in some not so comic way look at the United States of America and say, by gad, sir, you are a character. But in some ways, I think Sam Spade might actually be speaking for the United States of America on this question of the dropping of these bombs, because the United States point of view was we are going to end this thing. We're going to end this thing our way. And we're going to end it with a lot of prejudice because we didn't start it. Now, in the Nerd Hurdles show, there was a question of prejudice that came up. Why was the nuclear bomb used on Japan and not on the more European-looking people in Germany? And, of course, they came quickly to the conclusion that, hang on a second, as Dan Carlin mentioned in Hardcore History, you know, the same kind of intense firebombing that was going on at the time in Tokyo on that front and in Dresden, on the other front, producing the same kind of casualty rates and the same kind of horrific, not just horrific loss of life, but horrific types of loss of life, uh, melting the skin right off of people's bones, was happening whether you were using atomic war technology or not. And the other thing from an American perspective is, it's pretty well documented that a lot of the key breakthroughs in the development of the atomic bomb came not from American-born scientists, but from scientists who otherwise would have been building the same bomb for the Nazi purpose, whether for their own purposes or against their will. So you essentially have German scientists, among others, building a bomb that could have been used in Germany had Germany not fallen sooner and ultimately was used in Japan. Now, I'm willing to stipulate for the sake of argument, as Dan Carlin did in his show, that the use of nuclear weapons on these cities does qualify as a war crime. I dispute the claim that there were no legitimate military targets in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think that to a certain degree, that's a lot of historical revisionism because Japan's game plan during the war was to diversify its means of war production to such an extent that the entire nation had essentially become an instrument of war. Rather than taking key factories and key you know, points of munitions development and putting them off on one particular satellite island where they would be a relatively easier target and a military target that could cripple a supply line, these things were diversified and scattered all over. Yes, no doubt. When Allied forces were firebombing Tokyo, they were hitting buildings where there was no military target whatsoever. And likewise, when you demolish an entire city with the dropping of an entire bomb, you're being indiscriminate in the worst kind of way. So I, dis I disagree with the idea that it was an act of racial discrimination to target the Asians with this weapon and not the Europeans with this weapon. It was just bad luck and bad timing from that perspective. But I would have to agree with the idea that the use of this weapon and its massive scale of destruction was by its very design 
a weapon being used simultaneously against civilians and military targets. And the fact that Japan had interwoven the civilian and military purposes of not just buildings, but the people, you know, were they civilian, innocent, non-combatants, or were they actually part of the machinery of war? It was impossible to tell. It doesn't necessarily relieve the United States from the moral responsibility of not caring. And that's pretty much where this ties into this idea from the Maltese Falcon of, if you push me, I will take this to an extreme where you will have no choice but to kill me or let me have my way. And that's, to me, a very American character trait. Now, what do I mean by this? Let me make a statement of intent, and then I'll talk a little bit about what I mean by this. My statement of intent is this, that while perhaps the United States has much to answer for from a war crimes perspective and from a you know, an eternal judgment perspective, for the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, I put 100% of the blame and accountability for every single life taken in Nagasaki at the feet of Japan's ruling class, their military leaders, their emperor, 100%. You could make the argument that three days between August 6th and August 9th was not a lot of time. But if we're talking about a war crime, if we're talking about a weapon of unprecedented proportion, and the United States had warned Japan beforehand on July 26th saying, listen, now is the time for you to surrender. You can see kind of where this thing is ending. And Japan's response or non-response to that was basically one of saying, you may win this war, but if you win this war, you're going you're gonna to lose 15 million Americans doing it because you're going to have to win this war by going door to door in every major metropolitan area in Japan where you have to make an assumption about whether every man, woman, and child that you encounter is an enemy combatant or a person willing to surrender or perhaps a victim of a totalitarian regime. And along the way, you're going to lose a ton. You're going to lose an entire generation of people. And the United States' answer to that was Hiroshima. We weren't kidding at the end of July. We now have a weapon that will end this war, and we're going to end this war. And without perhaps explicitly telling Japan how many days they had, essentially Japan had at least two full 24-hour days to say, oh, crap, that was a severe miscalculation on our part. Maybe this thing doesn't have to end door-to-door in urban, hand-to-hand fighting. Maybe this war should end right now, because if they got one of those bombs, they might just have two. It wasn't, by the way, three days later, give or take, after the bombing of Nagasaki, that Japan did decide that maybe before the next one hit Tokyo, which is what would have happened, they might want to go ahead and surrender before America did what Americans have always recklessly said we wanted to do ever since. What was the answer after 9-11-2001, or a few days or weeks after, when it became clear that the people who had orchestrated that attack were being shielded from justice by the nation of Afghanistan? It wasn't at all unusual to hear the word parking lot with a phrase being dropped or turning sand into glass if we had found that the actual perpetrator had been a nation like Iran or Saudi Arabia, that as, as Americans, we're quick to yield the rhetoric of this power, even though I don't believe we've come close to using it again, because on the one hand, it is kind of a war crime, again, indiscriminate you know, use of a weapon that's going to destroy uh, human life on a massive scale, including clearly non-military targets. But I guess my other question is, 
you know, who started it? In the Maltese Falcon examples, you know, Sam Spade's lost a, a clear friend and ally, and he's had a friend's life taken in the midst of this by means that had nothing to do with his, you know, he didn't start it, in other words. And I temper my, temp- my temptation to be overly sympathetic with the Japanese military leadership because, you know, on the one hand, Japan, I think, took some effort to make sure that their surprise attack on Pearl Harbor was strategic and that while civilians were killed, it was more in keeping with the way the war had been conducted uh, or the way the war would be conducted in Europe in terms of trying to avoid the loss of human life. You didn't see the kind of things you saw in Iraq with Saddam Hussein where prisoners of war were being wrapped around military targets to make it clear to the United States or to any of our supporters in the original Desert Storm that attacking a military target was likely to lead to the death of innocent people who'd been placed in peril intentionally as a quote-unquote human shield. But in some ways, moving the means of production into urban areas was turning your entire population into some sort of a human shield. And in the case of the island of Oahu, you didn't really have that much of an intermingling of civilian population with the military targets. So if you attack a naval base and you really do focus your attack on the naval ships, with the goal being crippling the naval power of a potential enemy, or truthfully, just a country that has the potential to get in your way, weren't declared enemies at the time, you should have limited civilian damages. But I guess really Pearl Harbor tells the whole story from my perspective. This was not a war that the United States sought out. If anything, we were guilty, as we were in World War I, of not stepping up to you know come to the aid of our allies until things were you know looking fairly grim. So when the United States did get involved, the United States got involved, again, with an intent to finish it. And if it was necessary to drop a nuclear bomb to end that war, and end that war without a massive loss of future you know, military troops by having to fight in an urban landscape, you know, Dan Carlin makes it clear in his Hardcore History show, when you drop a whole bunch of international forces on a shore in Normandy, in that particular part of France, you're not even in the country that has started the war. And their forces there shoring up that particular part of the English Channel were not overwhelmingly strong. There wasn't going to be very many parts of the islands of Japan that weren't going to have a great deal of military resistance shoring them up, especially if it was fairly obvious that the way to end the war was to march on Tokyo. You have an island nation that was much more fortified to begin with and much in a much better position to fight off an invasion because they would have a pretty good idea of where that invasion was coming from. The surprise attack element that was present in D-Day on the European side of World War II was simply not present on the Japanese side. So to me, the United States drops a bomb. A couple of three days goes by before the next bomb gets dropped. There was plenty of room for surrender. And the sacrifice of those additional lives came at the hands of the rigidity and perhaps the stubbornness of the Japanese military leadership who started the war. Now, here's where I'm very conservative. I'm not a big fan of the flexing of American military power anytime someone, you know, calls for help. I'm more of the give me your tired, your poor, open-minded, liberal attitude toward immigration as America's, you know, sort of outreach to the world that I am intervening every time there's a genocide. Every time one half of Vietnam does something wrong to the other half of Vietnam, I don't think we send in the troops. Anytime one part of Sudan does something wrong to the other part of Sudan, 
I think there's got to be another answer besides just a knee-jerk reaction sending in the troops. And when troops get sent in, I think it's a mistake that those troops be, quote-unquote, American. I think there's a certain amount of nationalistic pride that's fairly pointless in doing that kind of intervention under our own flag. So from that perspective, some multinational force like NATO makes sense or some sort of UN direction makes sense. In the first Gulf War, what happened? Do we as a nation even remember? The world seems fuzzy on it as well. Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq, invaded Kuwait in a play to expand his territory and to add additional resources. Saudi Arabia didn't like it. Iran didn't like it, of course. You know, lifelong enemies ran in Iraq. Israel wasn't happy. And the United States and Europe, together with all of those other countries with regional interests, got together to expel Iraq from the nation of Kuwait and reestablish Kuwait's borders. And the war ended there. There's no ground invasion of Iraq. That moment where the next step was to take over the country of Iraq did not have widespread international support. So a treaty was signed. And in this treaty, there was a ceasefire agreement. The side that essentially prevailed or won the war, if you call Desert Storm War, was able to extract from the other side that there would be First off, a non-hostilities agreement. Second off, a no-fly zone. Third off, you know, the dismantling of certain weapons of mass destruction. All those sort of things were going to be in place, including inspections to back it up. So Iraq did not have to suffer through a ground invasion and a military occupation as a result of it. But the terms of the agreement were certainly a ceasefire and, a, and an agreement to certain terms of borders and no-fly zones and just a, a, an ending of hostilities. So I'm about to make a statement that is going to make me sound perhaps as conservative as George W. Bush. And I've been critical of George W. Bush before. So I'm a little bit uncomfortable because on the one hand, I still feel like he is perhaps the worst president in my lifetime. And I I feel like that's almost almost a no brainer. Right. Uh, Nothing annoys me more than seeing Republicans extol him or holding him up as some sort of a hero. I don't care what your issues are with Barack Obama. It's hard to find issues you might have with Barack Obama that are fundamentally different from the issues you would have had with George W. Bush. They may be slightly to the different side of what we would call center, but fundamentally, George W. Bush, I think, did – well, I'll I'll talk a little bit about why I think he was such a flawed, quote-unquote, leader. And yet at the same time, I voted against John Kerry, and I did so by voting for the worst president in my lifetime. Haven't really talked about this for a couple of years now. Early on in the show, I discuss it. I believe talking about um, you know elections not being horse races and votes being strategic. So what was the issue there? And how does it tie in to the questions of the bombings of Nagasaki in particular? Well, it's basically this. What turned me against John Kerry? And there were other things. But what turned me against John Kerry was that I felt like he had an opportunity to say the right things. He could have gotten very close to being somebody that I could have voted for comfortably, and he failed. He dropped the ball. And among the ways that he did is a a failure that I've heard from others as well. It's not hard to find other political pundits and podcasters who I feel have made the same mistake. The difference is you can make an ideological mistake as a podcaster. You can be a demagogue as a political pundit. And it not be as costly to your career aspirations as it would be if you were a candidate for president of the United States. Here's what I mean. An argument can be made 
that George W. Bush is a war criminal. An argument can be made that George W. Bush committed treason and should have been impeached. And you hear that argument a lot, especially from the left side of the political spectrum, because George W. Bush either lied or severely deceived himself in the testimony that he and his underlings gave before the United States Congress and before the American people and before the U.N. on the nature of the threat of Iraq, that you know, the, the entire, there's a certain level of fraud involved in the entire notion of Iraq producing a nuclear weapon that was capable of being a threat to the United States' interests. Your measure of the United States' interests has to extend perhaps even further than Israel, or you have to confuse those two ideas. And at no point was anybody, even in the Bush administration, gutsy enough to say that Iraq was likely to attack the United States with a nuclear bomb. But even all the notions of them developing the technology to wage that kind of warfare proved to be a stretch at the very least or a criminal overstatement at the most, in which case you can make an argument that here's an individual who may be guilty of war crimes, certainly is probably guilty of treason, that a case for impeachment, the only reason he was not facing articles of impeachment is that the world, not just the United States of America, but the world was embarrassed by the previous impeachment scandal. The ridiculousness and the vacuousness of the charges against Clinton, where even if those charges were 100% true, and I believe there's a lot to that idea, didn't necessarily measure up to what we might call an act of treason. And I cover that in an episode called Other High Crimes that was released December a couple of years ago. Uh, My feelings on the Clinton impeachment have been pretty well documented. It was after the bad taste in our mouths, after that particular impeachment process, that the United United States didn't have, we just didn't have the stomach for another one of those. But here's my beef with Kerry. If I grant you all of those things are true, you're a candidate for the presidency. You want to be the next president of the United States of America. You've got an obligation to mind your rhetoric, to find the right way to describe situations. And accusing your current president, and therefore your country, of being a war criminal in this particular area, probably a little bit suspect. Again, as a political pundit, you can go all the way out to the extreme of what you can, of what you can logically defend, and maybe even a half a step further if you're willing to whip those toes right back if you're called on it. But I think if somebody wants to be president of the United States, you've got to do better than that. And I think that perhaps you know, Mitt Romney, who's very recently demonstrated here when I'm speaking in early August or late July – about the Olympics, you've got to make a better diplomatic visit to London on the eve of the Olympics than that. If you want me to take you seriously as somebody who has the ability to do the diplomatic duties of being president of the United States, it's kind of an epic failure on his part. So where do I think John Kerry dropped the ball most? Well, it's really here. Can an argument be made that the invasion of Iraq was not a war crime, was not even illegal, even in the absence of the actual evidence of weapons of mass destruction. And my answer, which may shock even my conservative friends, is absolutely. Let's not forget who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with Saddam Hussein. This entire conflict began because he invaded a sovereign neighbor, and the entire world knew it was wrong, and the entire world stood up to stop it. And the fighting in that conflict, which restored Kuwait to its previous position in the world, it ended because of a ceasefire. Did Saddam Hussein violate that ceasefire? 
Not once, but often. And at some point when you violate a ceasefire, what happens? You go back to the original terms, which were war. Uh, Invading Iraq again and finishing the quote-unquote ground war that was actually the the bargaining chip and signing the ceasefire agreement to begin with, not only is it illegal, it makes perfect sense. It's what happens when two countries end a war by signing a treaty and one nation violates the treaty. It's what you would expect to occur. It's just for well over a hundred years now, we've never really seen it happen. But just because we've never seen it happen that way doesn't mean it isn't true. Now, let me be clear. I am not a fan of the Iraq side of this quote-unquote war on terror. I'm not a fan of the war on terror in principle to begin with. I don't think that the United States has any good reason to still be actively involved in warfare within the borders of Afghanistan. And I don't believe that it ever made sense for us to invade Iraq, even in the aftermath of 9-11-2001. In fact, I think even if we could have proven that Saddam Hussein was somehow an equal conspirator with the Taliban in shielding the people who committed this, this terrorist attack in the United States. Even then, I think we would have been wiser to have sent a message on one war front and not on two war fronts simultaneously. In other words, even if it was legal to declare that Iraq had violated the terms of a ceasefire and that hostilities between the world and Iraq were therefore resumed, And even if every other nation that was part of the original conflict, the original Desert Storm, was willing to re-up their participation, it doesn't make it smart. So here you are. You're John Kerry. You're a U.S. veteran of military conflict. You've been there. You should be able to speak from experience. And the real answer to the question of whether George Bush should have been unseated from the presidency for the foolishness of the way he had handled the quote-unquote war on terror was not that it was illegal. It's not that it was a war crime. It was what it was just wasn't smart. What kind of commander-in-chief has that sort of politically inept war strategy? And he can point the finger at his advisors all he wants to. They're his advisors. And John Kerry could have made a winning argument, from my perspective, that a different strategy made sense and that the president of the United States was being strategically naive and inept with his approach to the response in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks on September 11th. He didn't do it. And that was a huge mistake. But the biggest mistake I saw on the left side of the political spectrum during that election cycle in 2004, and the number one reason why I was you know, holding my nose and saying, am I going to get stuck casting a reelection bid? Granted, in retrospect, huge mistake. Should have voted independent. Not going to make that mistake again, as a matter of fact. Should have voted independent. But the biggest thing is that the left, I think at some point, lost complete track of the fact that this entire mayhem in the Middle East on an international scale was caused not by George Bush or his father, but by Saddam Hussein. Somebody picked a fight and somebody got a fight. And at the end of the day, as again, a conservative on some of these issues, I don't have any problem with fighting to end fighting. When I was a little kid, one of the messages I got from my father was, you know, you're going to encounter bullies from time to time. You're going to be put in a situation where it may be necessary to defend yourself. Don't take revenge, which by the way, is what George W. Bush's actions certainly looked like. Looked like revenge. You made my daddy look bad, and I'm about to get even with you for it. 
And if that wasn't his strategy, then what the hell was his strategy? I think my issues with George W. Bush's didn't have a clear point of view. But a lot of people on the liberal side of the political spectrum painted Saddam Hussein like some kind of a victim. And granted, at the very end of his life, hiding in a hole, being quickly tried, being executed on webcam. Yeah, I'll grant you that he, he did look in many ways like a victim, but he started this nonsense. Now, it's probably unfair to hold over the heads of your average citizen or even your above average citizen of cities like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that they own all of the consequences of their emperor's decision or that in a society where the emperor is viewed as a de facto God, that there was something wrong with them not challenging that authority, that they should have known better. They should have stood up to him. But let's make no mistake about who picked this fight and let's make no mistake about whether it's wrong because it's not to end fighting with a swift and decisive blow or two to the head or anywhere else. The lesson I suppose to be learned from my political philosophy is that if I feel like I'm caught by surprise or overpowered or cornered somehow, don't expect me to play nice. I didn't pick this fight. I don't have to keep the gloves up if you started it. Dan Carlin, it's hardcore history. Give you an example of what I mean. Ever fought an elephant in hand-to-hand combat? You, your relatives, your neighbors, some acquaintances get together on your street. I'll give you some swords and some spears and some javelins, and I'm going to put an elephant on the other side of the street with one guy on top of him, and I'm going to tell you to go get each other. Put that mental image in your mind for a second. The events. The war between Nazi Germany and the communist Soviet Union. If you took that out of the greater scheme of World War II and just looked at it by itself, it would be the largest war in human history. The drama. And what I said to my friend who asked me, what I thought an Apache raid, the aftermath of an Apache raid was like. I said, imagine you were one of the police officers that was the first to show up at one of the Manson murder scenes. The deep questions. What's that person thinking about? What's on that person's mind? What do you think about one minute into a crucifixion? Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com. I realize there's something inherently wrong with comparing the second nuclear bomb being dropped on Nagasaki with the equivalent of a punch to the crotch when you're facing a mugger. But let's make no mistake. On the world stage, in the Second World War, in the mid-1940s, Japan was the mugger. Hitler may have engaged in you know, a uh, premeditated heist of property and you know, the political landscape of Europe. And the emperor in Japan certainly had similar designs around Asia and the uh, Polynesian islands. His decision though, to rope the United States into it is the catalyst that led to atomic bombs being dropped on his own Island. And we make a serious mistake when we forget that the Saddam Hussein hiding in a hole is the same dictator who was murdering half a million of his people, give or take and picking a fight with the international community by invading his neighbors to rob their land and their oil and their gold. So, The American mentality has been, really, since then, and certainly during the Reagan administration, that if someone starts something with us, whether it's, you know, intimidating our allies in Europe or invading and taking over European nations and threatening to invade more, you remember the Soviet Union was threatening all along to unify Germany their way, as opposed to what John F. Kennedy had suggested was a better way of, you know, reunifying Germany. I defend Ronald Reagan's decision 
to line a ridiculous arsenal of weapons up on the border in the divided Germany and make sure that the Soviet Union understood that there was only one way this fight was going to end. This fight was going to end bloody. I mentioned in previous inappropriate conversations that despite occasional big talk, I really was not a fighter, more of a talker than a fighter, which is probably obvious. And the one fight that I did have in junior high school ended very quickly, virtually a one punch affair and landed both me and the person that I punched in the principal's office where matters were you know, pretty much diffused and settled from that point forward. But part of the reason that there was only one fight, uh, I, I grew up in two junior high schools. One was fairly violent. Uh, there was very, very rarely a week went by when somebody wasn't dealing with bloody nose or a black eye. And often enough, the way it was handled in that particular junior high school, before I changed school districts, before I moved to what we might call an older, an older wealth part of town, a, a middle class part of town where people didn't maybe get, get it mixed up quite as much. In that other school district, you'd meet outside. The idea was that somebody would make you mad. And even if they made you mad in homeroom or during lunch, I'll meet you at the church after school. Now, it sounds like a weird thing to say, but this particular junior high school was right next to a high school, and that high school was right across a uh, residential street from a church, from a small non-denominational church. And the church was small enough that at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on any given weekday, there was nobody in the office. You know, it was a church that had a lot of activity perhaps in the mornings from you know, secretaries coming in and you know, running bulletins or people making appointments for counseling, but in the afternoon nothing. It was a Sunday morning only kind of an institution. So if two angry kids got together and tried to resolve some sort of bullying issue with fisticuffs, you know, the little greens area right outside the sanctuary was a pretty good place to do it. And so my walk home from school every day took me right past that piece of property. And I'm telling you, there was never a week that I can recall went by that there was, wasn't some sort of a fight at the church. And the church didn't do anything about it because they weren't really, you know, no one was there. It was an unusual situation for any member of staff or any pastor to be in the building, to be even aware of what was going on, to go out and break it up or call the police. And the school's attitude, for better or worse, and in my mind, irresponsibly worse, was that these students were no longer on school property and it was no longer during school hours. So boys will be boys and it'll all get settled. Funny thing is, it wasn't always boys being boys. The uh, f absolutely the most violent fight I ever I witnessed, and to be fair, every now and then you'd stop and watch, was between two ninth grade girls. I don't know whether they were 10th grade in high school or ninth grade in junior high school. I think they were in the junior high school, but they were older than me, a couple of years. And that fight was brutal. I it wouldn't shock me to this day if one of the two girls in that fight is still suffering neurological difficulties from the beating that she endured. By all accounts, if you were watching the fight and asking people what was going on, the, the girl who lost the fight was the mean girl, was the bully. But, you know, I've encountered some mean girls in my life, and I never would have wished this on any of them. The reason I never got into any conflict that led me to the church after school was a little bit of what I didn't realize at the time was this Sam Spade mentality. I'm not going to play the game your way. If you launch, you know, a, a air and naval attack out of the blue, unannounced, to try to cripple my Navy, to keep me out of the Pacific Ocean, so you can take over the world while I'm rebuilding my ships, you better succeed. This is exactly what the key admirals in the Japanese 
uh, military said to the emperor at the time. This is a huge gamble. Now, taking the gamble is probably a good idea if we want the United States to stay out of what we've got in mind for the kind of subjugation we've got planned for Polynesian islands and for the rest of Asia. But if we don't succeed, if we don't knock the United States out, we're going to have to deal with them and it's not going to be pretty. The Sam Spade idea. I'm going to do this on my terms. And if you try to push me, I'm going to push you to the place of you having to put more chips in this particular game of poker than you want. I'm going to push it to where you either have to kill me or you have to do it my way. Whenever there was a conflict that would come my way, either via, via bullying or what, uh, a couple of times, once in science class, once in the cafeteria, seventh grade, somebody would, you know, raise a fist or, you know, use some choice words or, or threaten me. And if I chose to retaliate, and there's only a couple of times where I even responded to this kind of thing, their answer would be, well, I'll meet you in the church after school. And my response to that was, uh, tell you will. If we're going to settle things, we're going to settle things right here. We're going to settle them right here in the cafeteria where I may or may not have access to forks and knives. We're going to settle it right here in the science room where I may or may not have access to a Bunsen burner or to sulfuric acid. I will not fight you for sport. If you got a problem, put all your chips in. When we're done, there might be an ambulance because I'm not playing those games. The United States in August of 1945 told the Japanese emperor in no uncertain terms, we weren't playing his games and we weren't going to play them his way. He'd received a warning more than a week earlier in July that this war had turned a corner and it was going to end. It was going to end swiftly and immediately. And the only question was how many Japanese people had to die to make it happen. That the American military personnel were being pulled a little bit further away from danger. They were not going to be landing on the shores as targets for snipers and whatnot. And what would turn out to be the kind of Vietnamese situation that Stanley Kubrick fictionally or accurately depicted at the end of Full Metal Jacket. We weren't playing that game. We were simply going to respond with an attack of our own. Maybe an attack that has a more reckless quality to it than Pearl Harbor, but an attack that is just as decisive. One is saying, listen, I don't want to trade punches with you. I'm not interested in deciding on some sort of a, you know, neutral field outside the school, which one of us is quote unquote tougher. I want to be left alone. And if you're not going to leave me alone, then one of us or both of us are going to the hospital. If that's the kind of fight you want to fight, bring it on. It may be unsurprising that I didn't have any physical fights in seventh grade in that particular junior high school. And when I moved to the other junior high school in eighth grade, there was only one. It only took one time to demonstrate that, yeah, this is not a game. If you mess with this guy, he's probably going to ignore you. But if he doesn't ignore you, he's not going to wait till later. He's not going to take it outside. There are consequences to conflict. And yes, Dropping nuclear bombs on Japan, you know, I think it's hard to describe that in any other way than a war crime. It's also hard to describe it in any other way than a consequence. I don't know why, but more than a year ago when I decided, yes, 
comes the anniversary of the dropping of these two atomic bombs, I will speak about nuclear war and the idea of fighting to end fighting on inappropriate conversations. And when I do it, I want the different drummer to be National Public Radio, Fresh Air host, Terry Gross. I don't have a good explanation for that because I don't think that anything in Terry Gross's career reminds me of nuclear war. But on some level, there's a perspective that I've got for this which is simultaneously controversial, but seriously thought through, that almost reminds me of the Fresh Air show. And I think that among American journalists today, or at least among American radio or audio journalists, let's go with audio, because when I categorize this particular show from the perspective of the different drummer, I'm probably going to put podcaster on it. Now, Terry Gross is not genuinely in any way a podcaster. She's the host of what is unmistakably a national public radio formatted show on WHYY FM in Philadelphia and has been for a long number of years. When I first heard her, her show had been underway for quite some time, although it might not have been that long from when it joined the menu of programs that are nationally syndicated on NPR. It's just that her radio work now being available in podcast format, I think has genuinely turned a corner because for me, the way I consume fresh air is now almost 100% from podcast. When you move from one city to another, which I had for a while a few years ago, a couple decades back, you can't guarantee you're going to find this show. And if you do find the show quickly, you can't guarantee that it's going to be during your drive time. Certainly not going to be on the morning drive when most programming on NPR is related to morning edition or those shows. But I've had the uh, NPR fresh air program broadcast as early as 3 p.m., in the city that I lived in, and as late as 6 p.m. And that 6 p.m. slot was in some ways the most you know, frustrating for me. Except if I was driving home at 5.15, 5.30, sometimes the show would come on just in time for me to stop listening. And when I lived in you know, the central part of America, I would often drive home, catch enough of the show that really, for the only time in my life, would get home, turn on the radio to finish listening to something that I had been listening to in the car. When you think about it, for the most part, radio is being part of the background noise to our transportation. Back in the 90s in particular, it was something I listened to when I was driving somewhere. And it's very rare that you would you know, delay getting out of your car to finish listening to a song, especially a rock and roll song or a classic rock song you've heard many times before. But in the case of NPR, uh, Fresh Air actually has a, a much better social media engagement than it's ever had in the past. And one of the things that they will do is uh, ask via Twitter or elsewhere about people who've had driveway moments, moments where you're on the drive home because you're listening to this particular show and some interview that Terry Gross is doing. And rather than getting home, getting out of the car and going outside, you get home, you switch the engine off, leave the battery on so you can continue listening to the radio and the last 20 minutes of the interview that's going on because it seems impossible to pull yourself away from the interview. NPR Fresh Air is one of the very few programs that I've actually, back in the days of magnetic audio cassette tapes, set an audio cassette to record on more than one occasion, one off site, just because you know, I think it helps to give an example. Getting ready to go out the door, running a quick errand, maybe just to the grocery store and back. But the odds are that the time in the car is not going to be enough to catch the entire show. And by the time I've gone to the grocery store, bought the groceries, gotten back, I'm going to miss it. And knowing that this particular show was going to be her 
replaying interviews or re or introducing one interview but playing other back interviews with the members of the Monty Python troupe. I think maybe not long after Graham Chapman died, and a lot of the conversation, at least the current interviews, were talking about Graham Chapman himself. I remember setting an audio tape saying, hey, I've got a 90-minute tape. This is about a 45, 50-minute show. I can get most of it. Now, to me, that's, that's unthinkable today in the modern era. You just wait till the next day and you download the show onto your iPod and you're good to go. But back then, before iPods, the only way you're really going to get this show is if you're sitting somewhere listening to it, the driveway, for example, or if you're making a recording. And it wouldn't shock me if somewhere in the basement on some completely unmarked blank tape, I've got half of an interview with somebody that was on the NPR show. Here's a little bit of history for Terry Gross. Grew up in Brooklyn, New York in a Jewish family. Earned her bachelor's degree in English and a master's degree in communications from the University of Buffalo, State University of New York. She said she began a teaching career that she was totally unequipped for. Was fired after only six weeks. Her radio career began in 1973 in WBFO in Buffalo, New York, the uh, public radio station there. She began as a volunteer in 1975 and moved to WHYY in Philadelphia to host and produce Fresh Air. In 1985, Fresh Air with Terry Gross went national, being distributed weekly by NPR, and it became a daily program just two years later. It was in the period when it was a daily program that I would have encountered it. Recent acclaim for Terry Gross has been significant. On June 29th of this year, there was a press release announcing that Fresh Air was heading to the Radio Hall of Fame. Fresh Air with Terry Gross is being inducted into the Chicago-based Radio Hall of Fame, reports Chicago media writer Robert Fader. Lists the other honorees at the time. All of this well-deserved. i tell you the thing that I like the best about Terry Gross, though. Her style is not that slick. It's not that polished. It doesn't come in with the necessary bent or point of view. She's not the relaxed catch-as-catch-can new, new journalism style. But she also is not somebody who is either, you know, a political journalist trying to extract a, uh, you know, a pound of flesh from the people who she interviews or someone who is trying to be entertainment tonight, slick and entertaining. By all accounts, Gross is extremely well-read. And when she interviews people, she comes to them not just from the, probably the thing that they're trying to promote. If you're interviewing an author, if you're interviewing a musician, they probably have a new project going on, film director certainly. It's not unusual for Terry Gross to to dig back into their career, to ask questions from the deep catalog, or to ask them to make a connection between something in their childhood, at the start of their career, and at the point that they're speaking now. I think as somebody who goes into an interview with her, you probably never know exactly what you're going to get controversially, again, perhaps this year even, in a uh, speech that she gave to a national organization, Gross kind of made clear that she has a couple of very um, controversial rules in broadcasting circles. And I'm going strictly from memory here. I'm going to try to get it right. But one of them is that she will respect people who draw appropriate lines around their personal life in an interview. So she's not going to bring on somebody to interview them about their latest book and zing them about things in their personal life if there's been, you know, discussion beforehand about certain things being necessarily off-limits. On the other hand, that might lead her to cancel the interview altogether if the only point in discussing on a national stage with somebody is that issue of personal controversy. The other thing that Gross will do is allow people, if in the course of the interview, especially when they're, you know, fumbling to 
perhaps make an unexpected connection based on the line of interview questions, she will allow people to take another take at something. If they got it completely wrong, if they misspoke, if they used the wrong term. I encounter that more than a little bit here on this podcast where I have 100% after the fact editing control. Sometimes even after a show gets out, I realize I didn't mean to call that 2001. It happened in 2011. You know, it's not gotcha journalism, in other words. And for some, that's very controversial that a CEO who makes an appearance on uh, a broadcast news program to be interviewed by the host or hosts of the show should have gone through a murder board beforehand. His PR staff should have prepared him for anything that might happen. And the consequences are his to live with. It's not exactly the way Gross operates. And in some ways, it leads to the right kind of atmosphere where people that she is interviewing are willing to share a lot more, perhaps willingly a lot more, than they otherwise might share in any other sort of media conversation. The other thing I like about Gross, though, when you listen to her style, is that there is unmistakably an element from time to time of stammering. You can feel her as the person who is in charge of the interview. Every now and then, struggling to find the words she's looking for. And to me, it makes her as an interviewer as real as she's hoping to make the person that she's interviewing. That sometimes it is not easy to come up with the exact right phrase. And sometimes she has to back up and rephrase. I shouldn't have used that term. Here's what I meant. Can you answer the question from that perspective instead? These are things that I suspect a much more vain interviewer would probably cut out of the interview process, leave on the editing floor, and splice together in a totally different way. In some ways, I think as a country, we're looking for a completely different form of journalism. We have a journalism that is slick and saccharine and almost completely without calorie, meaningless, non-nutritional. And then we also have this sort of partisanship where... You know, you know that if you're going on that show, you're, you're going on that show with somebody who at the end of the day doesn't really care what you think. They care about what their viewers think. And whatever it is you say is either going to get bent to their ideological purpose or it's going to be left on the cutting room floor. You get the impression that Gross does it in a totally different way. That Terry Gross, given the opportunity, would be capable of interviewing the emperor of Japan shortly after the bomb dropped on Nagasaki and asked him what responsibility he feels he has for not surrendering two days sooner when it was obvious what might happen if he didn't. Not asking the question in a sort of a Bill O'Reilly Fox News, I'm going to attack you and make you look bad because you're my enemy way, but actually asking in a probing, genuinely human, why did you make that decision sort of way? Why would Saddam Hussein pretend to have biological weapons, chemical weapons, and perhaps, perhaps even a nuclear program, when putting up that facade and that pretense, when not backing down even at the very last minute, meant that everything that has happened to his country, and himself, of course, posthumously, was almost an inevitable consequence. It's not something that I'm proud of or happy with as an American. I'm indifferent, as I've already established, to whether it's a war crime or whether it was illegal. It wasn't good strategy. But as bad as the strategy was for George W. Bush to engage in twin war fronts to deal with a singular terrorist attack, it was even worse strategy on a monumental scale for someone like Saddam Hussein. What was he thinking? You know what? I can't name another journalist in America today 
in the radio format that I would more want to hear asked that question and more expect to hear asked that question than Terry Gross. Hi, everybody. Rich here. You know, one of the best things about Simply Syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out. Something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on Facebook and Twitter. All our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse. Just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word. I have in the distant past, been for a short time a financial supporter of National Public Radio. When I've made that call, every time I've made the phone call, it's been because of fresh air. It's been trying to target whatever I gave for that particular program. Now, this is not to diminish how much I enjoy other shows, like All Songs Considered. I rarely get to listen to Morning Edition because I'm usually on my morning commute listening to podcasts, often enough listening to the previous day's broadcast of NPR Fresh Air. But part of the reason that I've targeted Fresh Air is that when I was just a kid, you know, you know, out of college, starting at this point, I'd starting to manage the record store. So it's been a couple of years after college. One of the shows that I really attached myself to one of the radio stations was the local NPR station that was associated with the, the university. And what this university did that I really thought was pretty, pretty cool was that in addition to allowing students to learn the craft by being part of the jazz program or the classical program on the NPR station that was you know, aligned with the university during you know, afternoon hours. They also turned the radio station over to what you might call sort of third rail underground alternative rock in the evening. And the problem that this local station made was this after hours program that was willing to play music by groups like The Fall and Happy Flowers was that once you engage this audience this way, Using the time that otherwise might be dead air on a college NPR station, what happens when you take that away? What happened for me when they took that away, when the After Hours show was summarily canceled as being not part of the mission of that particular NPR branch, was they lost me as a supporter. The only way NPR got me back, and it did take years later, was fresh air. And the number one reason for that is our different drummer, Terry Gross. Sometimes I don't know how controversial my topic is from week to week, but this week I think it's pretty fair to say, just based on the other podcasts that I was listening to in and around the time I was preparing this topic, that I am in a pretty controversial spot. So, as always, if you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, feel free. The website has show notes enabled at www.inappropriateconversations.org. I also can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.
the podcast that encourages you to dork in, nerd on, and geek out. I'm Jacob. And I'm Mandy. We talk about stuff that's too nerdy for people to like. Sometimes we drift off topic. You have to actually be on topic to drift off it. You make a good point. Nerd Hurdles.